Section 17 of How They Succeeded This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. How They Succeeded by Orison Sweat Marden John B. Hershoff, The Yacht Builder 1. THE VOYAGE OF LIFE Total eclipse, no sun, no moon, Darkness amid the blaze of noon. Milton Amid the ranks of the blind, We often find men and women of culture and general ability, But we do not look for world-renowned specialists. No one is surprised at a display of enterprise In a booming western town, where everybody is hustling, but in a place which has once ranked as the third seaport in America, but has seen its maritime glory decline, a man who can establish a marine industry on a higher plane than was ever before known, and attract to his work such worldwide attention as to restore the vanished fame of his town, is no ordinary person. Moreover, if such a man has laid his plans and done his work in the disheartening eclipse of total blindness, he must possess qualities of the highest order. The office of the Hershoff Manufacturing Company at Bristol, Rhode Island, is in a building that formerly belonged to the Burnside Rifle Company. It is substantial, but unpretentious, and is entered by a short stairway on one side. The furniture throughout is also plain, but has been selected with excellent taste and is suggestive of the most effective adaptation of means to ends in every detail. On the mantel and on the walls are numerous pictures, most of them of vessels, but very few relating directly to any of the great races for the America's Cup. The first picture to arrest one's attention, indeed, is an excellent portrait of the late General Ambrose E. Burnside, who lived in Bristol, and was an intimate friend of John B. Hershoff. Previous inquiry had elicited the information that the members of the firm are very busy with various large orders, in addition to the rush of work on cup defenders. So it was a very agreeable surprise when I was invited into the tasteful private office where the blind president sat, having just concluded a short conversation with an attorney. Let the work show. Well, sir, said he, rising and grasping my hand cordially, what do you wish? I realize how very busy you must be, Mr. Hershoff, I replied, and will try to be as brief as possible, but I venture to ask a few minutes of your time to obtain suggestions and advice from you to young people. But why select me, in particular, as an adviser? This was a poser at first, especially when he added, noted my hesitation. We are frequently requested to give interviews in regard to our manufacturing business, but... Since it is the settled policy of our house to do our work just as well as we possibly can, and then leave it to speak for itself, we have felt obliged to decline all these requests. It would be repugnant to our sense of propriety to talk in public about our special industry. Let the work show, seems to us a good motto. The Voyage of Life True, said I, but the readers of my book may not care to read of cutters or skimming dishes, center-boards or fin keels, or copper coils versus steel tubes for boilers. They leave the choice in such matters to you, 
realizing that you have always proved equal to the situation. What I want now is advice in regard to the race of life, the voyage in which each youth must be his own captain, but in which the words of others who have successfully sailed the sea before will help to avoid rocks and shoals, and to profit by favoring currents and trade winds. You have been handicapped in an unusual degree, sailing in total darkness and beset by many other difficulties, but have, nevertheless, made a very prosperous voyage. In overcoming such serious obstacles, you must have learned much of the true philosophy of both success and failure, and I think you will be willing to help the young with suggestions drawn from your experience. I always want to help young people, or old people either, for that matter, if anything I can say will do so. But what can I say? A mother's mighty influence. What do you call the prime requisite of success? I have to answer that by a somewhat humorous but very shrewd suggestion of another, select a good mother. Especially for boys, I consider an intelligent, affectionate, but considerate mother an almost indispensable requisite to the highest success. If you would improve the rising generation to the utmost, appeal first to the mothers. In what way? Above all things else, show them that reasonable self-denial is a thousandfold better for a boy than to have his every wish gratified. Teach them to encourage industry, economy, concentration of attention and purpose, and indomitable persistence. But most mothers try to do this, don't they? Yes, in a measure. But many of them, perhaps most of them, do not emphasize the matter half enough. A mother may wish to teach all these lessons to her son, but she thinks too much of him, or believes she does, to have him suffer any deprivation, and so indulges him in things which are luxuries for him, under the circumstances, rather than necessities. Many a boy, born with ordinary intellect, would follow the example of an industrious father, were it not that his mother wishes him to appear as well as any boy in the neighborhood. So, without exactly meaning it, she gets to making a show of her boy, and brings him up with a habit of idling away valuable time to keep up appearances. The prudent mother, however, sees the folly of this course, and teaches her son to excel in study and work, rather than in vain display. The difference in mothers makes all the difference in the world to children, who, like brooks, can be turned very easily in their course of life. Self-help What ranks next in importance? Boys and girls themselves, especially as they grow older, and have a chance to understand what life means, should not only help their parents as a matter of duty, but should learn to help themselves for their own good. I would not have them forego recreation, a reasonable amount every day, but let them learn the reality and earnestness of existence, and resolve to do the whole work and the very best work of thorough, reliable young men and women. What career? What would you advise as to choosing a career? In that I should be governed largely by the bent of each youth. What he likes to do best of all, that he should do, and he should try to do it better than anyone else. That is legitimate emulation. Let him devote his full energy to his work, with the provision, however, that he needs change or recreation more in proportion as he uses his brain more. The more muscular the work, if not too heavy, the more hours is a good rule. The more brain work, the fewer hours. 
children at school should not be expected to work so long or so hard as if engaged in manual labor. Temperament, too, should be considered. A highly organized, nervous person, like a racehorse, may display intense activity for a short time, but it should be followed by a long period of rest, while the phlegmatic person, like the ox or the draft horse, can go all day without injury. Education I believe in education most thoroughly, and think no one can have too much knowledge, if properly digested. But in many of our colleges, I have often thought, not more than one in five is radically improved by the course. Most collegiates waste too much time in frivolity, and somehow there seems to be little restraining power in the college to prevent this. I agree that students should have self-restraint in application themselves, but in the absence of these, the college should supply more compulsion than is now the rule. Apprentices Do you favor reviving the old apprentice system for would-be mechanics? Only in rare cases. As a rule, we have special machines now that do as perfect work as the market requires. Some of them, indeed, better work than can be done by hand. A boy or man can soon learn to tend one of these when he becomes, for ordinary purposes, a specialist. Very few shops now have apprentices. No rule, however, will apply to all, and it may still be best for one to serve an apprenticeship in a trade in which he wishes to advance beyond any predecessor or competitor. Prepare to the utmost, then do your best. Is success dependent more upon ability or opportunity? Of course, opportunity is necessary. You couldn't run a mammoth department store in the desert of Sahara. But given the possibility, the right man can make his opportunity, and should do so if it is not at hand, or does not come, after reasonable waiting. Even Napoleon had to wait for his. On the other hand, if there is no ability, none can display itself, and the best opportunity must pass by unimproved. The true way is to first develop your ability to the last ounce, and then you will be ready for your opportunity, when it comes, or to make one if none offers present opportunities. Is the chance for a youth as good as it was twenty-five or fifty years ago? Yes, and no. In any country, as it becomes more thickly populated, the chance for purely individual enterprises is almost sure to diminish. One notices this more as he travels through other and older countries, where, far more than with us, boys follow in the footsteps of their fathers, generation after generation. But for those who are willing to adapt themselves to circumstances, the chance today, at least from a pecuniary standpoint, is better than ever before, for those starting in life. There was doubtless more chance for the individual boat builder, in the days of King Philip, when each Indian made his own canoe. But there is certainly more profit now, for an employee of our firm of boat builders. Natural Executive Ability Granted, however, that he can find employment, how do his chances of rising compare with those of your youth? They still depend largely upon the individual. Some seem to have natural executive ability, and others develop it, while most men never possess it. Those who lack it cannot hope to rise far, and never could. Jefferson's idea that all men are created equal is true enough, perhaps, so far as their political rights are concerned, but from the point of view of efficiency in business it is ridiculous. In any shop of one hundred men, you will find one who is acknowledged, at least tacitly, as the leader, and he sooner or later becomes so in fact. 
a rich boy may get and hold a place in an office on account of his wealth or influence but in the works merit alone will enable a man to hold a place long the development of power but what is his chance of becoming a proprietor that is smaller of course as establishments grow larger and more valuable it is all bosh for every man to expect to become a vanderbilt or a rockefeller or to be president but in the long run a man will still rise and prosper in almost exact proportion to his real value to the business world he will rise or fall according to his ability can he develop ability yes to a certain extent as i have said we are not all alike and no amount of cultivation will make some minds equal to those of others who have had but little training but whether great or small every one has some weak point let him first study to overcome that how can he do that the only way i know of is to to do it but this brings me back to what i told you at first a good mother will show one how to guard against his weak points she should study each child and develop his individual character for character is the true foundation after all she should check extravagance and encourage industry and self-respect my mother is one of the best and i feel i owe her a debt i can never repay my mother your mother why i thought you had been a boat builder for half a century how old is she she is eighty-eight and still enjoys good health if i have one thing more than another to be thankful for it is her care in childhood and her advice and sympathy through life how often have i thought of her wisdom when i have seen mothers from europe where they were set aside to be peasants seek to outshine all their neighbors after they have been in america a few years and so bring financial ruin to their husbands or even goad them into crime and curse their children with contempt for honest labor in positions for which they are fitted and a foolish desire to keep up appearances even by living beyond their means and by seeking positions they cannot fill properly a boat builder in youth you must have been quite young when you began to build boats about thirteen or fourteen years old you see my father was an amateur boat builder in a small way and did very good work but usually not for sale but i began the work as a business thirty-six years ago when i was about twenty-two he would not be discouraged you must have been terribly handicapped by your blindness it was an obstacle but i simply would not allow it to discourage me and i did my best just the same as if i could see my mother had taught me to think and so i made thought and memory take the place of eyes i acquired a kind of habit of mental projection which has enabled me to see models in my mind as it were and to consider their good and bad points intelligently besides i cultivated my powers of observation to the utmost in other respects even now i take an occasional trip of observation for i like to see what others are doing and so keep abreast of the progress of the age but i must stop or i shall get to talking shop the thing i declined to do at first the sum of it all the main thing for a boy is to have a good mother to heed her advice to do his best and to not get a swelled head as he rises in other words not to expect to put a gallon into a pint cup or a bushel into a peck measure concentration decision industry and economy should be his watchwords and invincible determination and persistence his rule of action with another cordial handshake he bade me good-bye two what the hershoff brothers have been doing 
Their recent cup defenders have made their names familiar to all, but shipping circles have long known them. The business of the firm was long confined almost wholly to the creation of boats with single masts, each craft from twenty to thirty-six feet long. In their first ten years of associated work, they built nearly two thousand of these. But they were wonderful little boats, and of unrivaled swiftness. Then they made as wonderful a success in building steam fishing yachts. Then came torpedo boats. And in 1881, their proposal to the British government to build two vedette boats was accepted on condition that they should outmatch the works of White, the naval launch builder at Cowes. No firm had ever been able to compete with White, but in the following July, the two Herrschaft boats were in the Portsmouth Dockyard, England, ready for trial. They were each 48 feet long, 9 feet in beam, and 5 feet deep, exactly the same size as White's. They made 15 and one-half knots an hour, while White's only recorded 12 and two-fifths knots. With all their machinery, coal and water in place, the Herrschaft boats were filled with water, and then twenty men were put aboard each, that human load being just so much in excess the Admiralty test, and even then each had a floating capacity of three tons. The examiners pronounced enthusiastically in favor of the Herrschaft safety coil boilers as unexplodable, less liable to injury from shock, capable of raising steam more quickly, far lighter, and in all respects superior to those that had been formerly used for the purpose. The boats were accepted, and orders given at once for two pinnaces, each thirty-three feet long. Again, John Samuel White competed, but his new boats could only make seven and one-eighth knots, while the Herrschafts easily scored nine and one-quarter. Racing J. Gould In July, 1883, J. Gould was highly elated over the speed of his beautiful steam-lot Atalanta, which had several times met and distanced Edward S. Jaffray's wonderful stranger. But on the twentieth of that month, his happiness, as the story is told, was very suddenly dashed. After a hard day's work, the jaded Jay boarded the Atalanta and began to shake out his pin feathers a little, figuratively speaking. But before his boat had gone far on her run to Irvington, the bold manipulator of Wall Street made out a craft on his weather quarter that seemed to be gliding after the Atalanta with intent to overhaul her. He had a good start, however, and sang out to the captain to keep a sharp eye on the persistent little stranger, so unlike the stranger he had vanquished. "'I wonder what it is,' he exclaimed to a friend beside him. The friend looked long and carefully at the oncoming boat, then turned a quizzical eye on Jay, remarking, "'In a little while we can tell.' Will she get that close? I think she will. It was not long before the strange boat was abreast of the Atalanta, and Jay was then able to make out the mystical number 100 on her. He rubbed his eyes. Those were the very figures he had long hoped to see on the stock ticker, after the words Western Union, but that day they had lost their charm. Before long, he was not only able to see the broadside of the 100, but also had a good view of the stern of the vessel whereon the same figures soon appeared, and nearly as soon disappeared, as the one hundred bade good-bye to the Atalanta, which was burning every pound of coal that could possibly be carried without putting Mr. Gould or some efficient substitute on the safety valve. "'He seems to be out of humor to-night,' said his coachman, after leaving his employer at the door of his Irvington mansion. The Mystic One Hundred, which, by the way, was just one hundred feet overall, was merely the hundredth steamer built by the Herrschafts, but on her first trip up the Hudson she attracted as much attention as the half-moon of Henry Hudson or the Claremont of Robert Fulton. She was the fastest yacht in the world, 
and was beaten on the river only by one vessel, the Mary Powell, four and one-half minutes in twenty miles. Although Mr. Gould was considerably irritated at his defeat, he knew a good thing when he saw it, and the next year he ordered a small steam launch of the Herrschafts. The 100 made a great stir in Boston Harbor. Later on she steamed through the Erie Canal and the Great Lakes, and made her home with the millionaire Mark Hopkins. The Stiletto The versatility of the Herrschafts has appeared in their famous boiler improvement, and in the great variety of vessels they have built. The Stiletto, only ninety-four feet long overall, astonished the yachting world of 1885. On June 10, she beat the Mary Powell, two miles in a race of twenty-eight miles on the Hudson. At one time, the stiletto circled completely around the big steamer, and then moved rapidly away from her. Secretary Whitney bought the stiletto for the United States Navy, in which she has done valuable service. She was followed, in 1890, by the still faster Cushing, whose record in the recent Spanish-American War is so well known. Admiral Porter wrote to Secretary of the Navy Chandler that the little Herrschaft steam launches were faster than any other owned by the government, their great superiority showing especially against a strong headwind and sea, where they would remain dry while their rivals required constant bailing. They were better trimmed, lighter, more buoyant, and in every way superior in nautical qualities, and twice as fast as others in a gale. Nineteen vessels have been built by this firm for the United States government. There is a certain speed that attaches to every vessel, which may be called its natural rate, says Louis Herrschoff. It is mainly governed by its length and the length of the carrier wave which always accompanies a vessel parallel to her line of motion. When she reaches a speed great enough to form a wave of the same length as the moving body, then that vessel has reached her natural rate of speed, and all that can be obtained above that is done by sheer brute force. The natural limit of speed of a boat forty feet long is about ten miles an hour, of a vessel sixty feet in length, twelve and one-quarter miles, of one a hundred feet long, fifteen and three-quarters miles, of one two hundred feet long, twenty-two miles. As the speed is increased, this double or carrier wave, one half on either side of the yacht, lengthens in such a way that the vessel seems to settle more the faster she goes, and so has to climb the very wave she makes. Hence, the motive power must be increased much faster than the speed increases. Further, in order to avoid the settling and consequent climbing as much as possible, lightness of construction, next to correct proportions, is made the great desideratum in the Herrschaft's ideal boat. They use wood whenever possible, as it is not only lighter than metal, but is reasonably strong and generally much more durable. Wherever heavy strains come, a bracing form of construction is adopted, and metal is used also. The engine of the stiletto weighs ten pounds for each indicated horsepower, that of the Cushing, fifteen. The entire motive plant of the Cushing weighs sixty-five pounds for each horsepower, that of the city of Paris, two hundred. Comparing displacement, the former has eight times the power of the latter. For four years our government kept a staff of officers stationed at the Herrschaft Works to experiment with high-speed machinery, in which the firm then led the country. One of their steamers, ascending the St. Lawrence River to the Thousand Islands, ran up all the rapids except the Lachine, where a detour by canal was made. The Canadians were deeply impressed by this triumph. The Blind Brothers One of the Herrschaft sisters is blind, and a remarkable musician, and one brother, blind, who studied music in Berlin, and who conducts a school of music in Providence. Louis Herrschaft, one of the boat builders, is also blind. He, too, is a fine musician, and an excellent bass singer, 
having received careful vocal training in Europe. He has fine literary taste, a very clear style, and writes for magazines, especially on boat building and engineering. He has a large foreign correspondence, all of which he answers personally on the typewriter. It would be difficult to find a greater favorite with young people, to whom he devotes much of his time, teaching them games or lessons, also how to sail or roll a boat, how to swim or float, and how to save each other from drowning. When walking along the street with a group of chatting children, he will ask, What time is it by the clock on St. Michael's Church? Pointing right at the steeple. He will wind a clock and set it exactly, and regulate it if it does not go right. THE PERSONALITY OF JOHN B. Hershoff. From his boyhood, John B. Hershoff evinced a great fondness for boats and machinery, finding most pleasure, in his leisure hours, when boys of his age usually think only of play, in haunting boat-builders' yards and machine-shops, studying how and why things were done, and reading what had been done elsewhere in those branches of industry beyond his field of observation. At the age of eleven, he was studying the best lines for vessels' hulls, and making models, and three years later he began building boats. His terrible affliction has never seemed to weaken his self-reliance or turn him aside from following the chosen pursuit of his life, but has rather strengthened his devotion to it and his capacity for it by concentrating all his faculties upon it. His many years of blindness have given him not only the serious, patient, introspective look common to those who suffer like him, and their gentle, clearly modulated voice, but have also developed all his other faculties to such an extent as to largely replace the missing sense. He can tell as much about an ordinary-sized steam launch, her lines, methods of construction, etc., by feeling, as others can by seeing, and he goes on inventing and building, just as if his eyes were not closed forever. He is a tall, big-brained man, who couldn't help inventing and working if he tried. Such a man would have to suffer the loss of more than one of his senses before his mental efficiency would be impaired. When he wanted to build some steam launches for the government, he went to the Navy Yard at Washington, and felt of the government launches, to discover their shape and how they were made. Then he went to Bristol, and made better launches suitable for the government's use. Has he a sixth sense? He reads and understands the most delicate intonations and modulations of voices addressing him, as others read and understand facial expression. His sensitive fingers detect differences in metals, and follow, as if with a gift of perception, the lines of models submitted to him, and his mind sees even more clearly than by mere physical sight the intricacies of the most complicated machinery intelligently described to him, or over which his fingers are allowed to move. That is a good stick, he will say, examining a pile of lumber with his fingers. Here's a shaky piece. Throw it out. It won't do for this work. May come next. Or, saw off this end is poor stock. The rest is all right. On hearing him criticize, direct and explain things within his province, a stranger finds it hard to believe he cannot see at least a little out of one eye. SEEING WITH THE FINGERS By the constant practice, he has, as he expresses it, learned to see with his hands, not quite so quickly, but he believes as perfectly as he could with his eyes, and this means more than it does in the case of an ordinary blind man, for, by a touch, he can tell whether the graceful double curves of a boat's bottom are in correct proportion, one with another, and then, by a few rapid sweeps of his hands over all, he can instantly judge of the symmetry and perfection of the whole. Even more than this, he will give minute directions to the carpenters and mechanics, running his hand along the piece of work one had produced, will immediately detect the slightest deviation from the instruction he has given. 
If at all impatient, he will seize the plane or another tool and do the work himself. And yet the world calls this man blind. While skill plays a material part, one of John B. Hershoff's boats is a product of the mind, in a very great degree. Psychologists tell us that we do not see with our eyes, but with the brain proper. This blind man sees and constructs, not that which is objective and real to others, but that which is evolved from a transcendental intelligence applied to the most practical purposes. Brother Nat One of the brothers, who has good eyes, is a prominent chemist in New York, and one who can see is Nat, the designer for the boat building. Nathaniel G., the great yacht designer, was born in 1848. When he was not more than two years old, he was often found asleep on the sand along shore, with the rising tide washing his bare feet. Whenever he was missing, he was sought for first on the shore, where he would generally be found watching the ships or playing with toy boats. At nine years of age, he was an excellent helmsman, and at twelve he sailed the sprite to her first victory and won a prize. When older grown, he was known as a vigilant watcher of every chance as well as a skillful sailor. Once, when steering the Ianthe into a failing wind, he veered widely from a crowd of contestants so as to run into a good breeze he noted far to starboard, and won the race. He took a four years course at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and then served an apprenticeship with the famous Corliss Engine Company. He worked on the great engine of the Centennial Exposition, and took a course of engineering abroad, visiting many noted shipyards. He joined the firm in 1877, fourteen years after the works were opened. Nathaniel Green Hershoff, named for the General Green of revolutionary fame, is seven years younger, and only less famous than his blind brother as a boat builder, only second to John B. in about the same way that Green was second to Washington. General Green is second to no one, said Washington. John B. would have done splendid work without Nat, as he did for years before the latter joined the firm, but it would have been in a smaller way. For years, John B., his father, and his brothers, James B., or Lewis, and Nathaniel G., were accustomed to get together frequently in the dining-room of the old homestead, and talk and plan together in regard to boat-building. Nat would usually make the first model on lines previously agreed upon, and then John B. would feel it all over and suggest changes, which would be made, and the consultation continued until all was satisfactory. Nathaniel is described as a tall, thin man with a full beard and stoop, the latter said to have been acquired in watching his rivals in his races, craning his head in order to see them from under the boom. "'We have been always together from boyhood,' said John B., speaking of Nat. "'We have had the same pleasures, the same purposes, the same aspirations. In fact, we have almost been one, and we have achieved nothing for which a full share of credit is not his just due. Nothing has ever been done by one without the other. Whenever one found an obstacle or difficulty, the other helped him to remove it, and he, being without the disadvantage I have, never makes a mistake. End of section 17. Recording by Todd.